Well, good morning, guys. We had a good first service. We um, we were able to do something special. Our first service, we recognized our high school graduates. So um, we had, a, uh, I think, three different graduates that were here this morning. So uh, Mia Yamas, uh, Colleen Castle, and, and um, uh, Carly, Carly Alley. I knew my mind went blank there for a minute. Three, so we had three, we were able to recognize them. So if you see them, encourage them, congratulate them. Um, uh, and so it was, we had a good service doing that. But we also were able to um, continue this series we're in. Uh, we're in a series called I Believe. And what we're doing is we're going back. Um, in the early church, they had different statements, or they were called creeds, that were used. And they were used uh, to, to help teach doctrine. And so in, in some ways, that what happened shortly after uh, Jesus died and, and resurrected and ascended to heaven... Uh, the early church we see in Acts started forming and then, you know, spreading and, uh, and growing. But you had a few people come up and say, but Jesus didn't really live in human flesh. He was just a spirit. Or you had people say all these different things. And so what the church did is they developed statements to kind of summarize the essentials of the faith. This is what we agree on. And one of those statements was the Apostles' Creed. It was... Uh, the original form was around 140 to 160 A.D., um, so not long, you know, within a hundred, about a little over 100 years after uh, Jesus ascended, they had started formulating this. It was used to combat heresy. It was used as a statement of faith when people were baptized. They would stand up and recite the Apostles' Creed. It was not written by the Apostles, but it was a summary of what they taught in the church um, and so we wanted to just to take a few weeks and study this. What can we learn from the early church that is still applicable today? And the problem is, I think so often, we keep things too shallow in the church today. And so we'll say, all you need to do is just put, believe in Jesus, admit you're a sinner, and, and you, you, that's it. Right? And, and the truth is, we need to know theology. We need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. We need to be able to explain what we believe. A.W. Tozer said, what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. All right. And there's truth to that. It's, it's our understanding of who God is. It really shapes how we live everyday life. And so we need to understand um, who God is, why Jesus came, why we need a Savior, why all this stuff. And, and this statement kind of helps us do that. Let's... Uh, I'll put it up on the screen. I'll read it this morning. This is the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now, I mentioned last week, just a reminder, we're not Catholic. Um, the word Catholic, this statement was actually written before the Roman Catholic Church existed. Um, and so this, the word Catholic meant universal. It's kind of lower C. It just, that word just means universal, the Holy Universal Church. All those who believe in Jesus. Last week we talked about how 
God is the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and why that is important to understand really that the gospel starts all the way back with creation. But today, we want to focus in on this second statement. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So in all honesty, this morning, you get a Christmas message in the middle of May, okay? So you get a, we get to talk about the Christmas message, right? Uh, let, let's talk about what it means to believe. We throw around the word believe pretty casually, I would say. Uh, you know, we, we believe in our sports team. We, we believe in each other, you know. But, but let me give you an example of belief. I can say to you this morning, I believe that my wife is a good driver. Okay? I believe it. And, and I, mentally, I would say that, yeah, she's a good driver. And many of you, we, we have beliefs like that. But is it truly belief until I get in the car with her and let her drive? You see where I'm going with this? See, my wife, her driving has been described as evangelism driving. Okay? You get in the car, you buckle up, and you better pray you know Jesus. Because if you don't, you're going to be asking. You don't want to meet him, right? And you want to be praying. You're going to be holding on, and you're going to be praying for your salvation on the trip. So it's just it's evangelistic driving. Okay? But the truth is, I really do believe she's a good driver, and it takes some trust sometimes to get in the car, to shut the door, and then you better buckle up and hold on. But that's, you know, that's it. mentally, we can say we believe in something, but until we get in the car and we buckle up and we trust them, is it really belief? You see where I'm going with that, right? We say belief in the Bible is more than a mental, intellectual assent and saying, I agree with it. I know about it. Belief in the Bible is active. And, and it's interesting in the Bible, um, the words faith and belief are very similar words. Uh, the Bible dictionary says faith, it, it, it defines faith as a belief in or a confident attitude towards God uh, involving a commitment to his will. And, and so faith is this like active belief and belief is, is faith. They're two sides of the same coin. There's um, at least four words in the Greek for faith and the words can be translated as I'm persuaded, I'm convinced. Uh, the word belief is similar. It means you have confidence and you have trust. In essence, when you say you have faith or you have belief, you are convinced by the facts. You're convinced by the facts. And so uh, what you're saying is, I really fully, wholeheartedly believe in this. And, and so we're saying, I can get in the car, I can shut the door, I can buckle up, and I can trust that that person that's driving is in control. That's what belief in God is. It's saying, I have so much faith in God, I have my trust, my belief in God, I'm going to trust Him to direct and drive my life. And so it's more than just knowing about. The, the, the Bible even says, the demons even acknowledge there is a God. The demons know it, they, they believe it. And so we need to go beyond just knowing that there is a God. And I'm afraid, again, so many people in our world today say, yeah, there's a God out there, I believe in God. But let me tell God the way I want to live my life. Let me define the parameters, the rules, the, the, everything about my life in such a way that I'm still in control. That's not belief. That's not trust. That's not faith. That's just knowing that there is a God out there. 
And so we really want to get in to understanding what we believe, and it really does matter. And let me just ask you this morning, do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus? Now, that's something, again, I, I think intellectually we, we've heard, we know about it's a Christmas story, the, uh, the Virgin Mary. We, we hear this all the time. But have you ever really stopped to think about why it matters? Have you ever really dug deep into say, theologically, this is how it affects how I live my life today? And so that's what we want to do today. We want to kind of dig a little bit deeper because the virgin birth is such a central part of the Christian faith. And, and, and there's a reason for that. It's a powerful reminder of who Jesus is, why he came, of what he's done for us. And this, it's this huge divine mystery that we want to explore and so that's today what I want to do. I want to give you just three reasons why I think the virgin birth is important, why we need to study it, why we need to know it. Um, and, and here's the first. It, the virgin birth, it shows that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. He is the prophesied Messiah. You see, in the Old Testament, we have uh, this story of how God created the world and then how sin entered the world. And, and then there's this whole story about there is someone that's going to come to rescue us. There's a Messiah that we're all waiting for and we're praying for. And that person is Jesus. Um, you see, the Messiah is the one who was promised to come and to save his people from their sins. And Jesus was the one that fulfilled this prophecy by being born of a virgin, by living a sinless life, by dying on the cross for our sins, and by rising from the dead. About In our scripture reading this morning, we read from Isaiah 7. This is written about 700 years before Jesus. And, and what Isaiah said here, he kind of gave us a glimpse of a, a, about the Messiah. Now at the time, they didn't realize this was written about the Messiah. But as we learn later in Matthew, we see when, they, when this was quoted in Matthew, we see this was a prediction for the Messiah. It says in Isaiah 7, 14, All right then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And so this prophecy was spoken long before the birth of Jesus. It foretold someone's going to come in, in, in a spectacular, supernatural way. The world's going to see that this person then is going to be God is with us. At the time, they didn't understand. At the time, they didn't really know what he was talking about. We can understand now. And so the virgin birth of Jesus was predicted in the Old Testament here 700 years before Jesus. But I would say you could even trace it back even further. It's because in Genesis 3.15, um, in Genesis, it talks about this idea that when it's talking about the serpent and Adam and Eve, it says, uh, it says that the seed of the woman would destroy the serpent. And, and as you get into that, you realize that, uh, that, that, that it really doesn't match up, that women don't have a seed, that the seed is male, and it doesn't make sense until you understand, right, the virgin birth. And so, again, we have this, these glimpses throughout the Old Testament about the Messiah. Uh, the suffering servant. The, all these different pictures about where the Messiah would be born and be born in Bethlehem and all these different things. And to me, 
I'm just telling you, there, there's plenty of different reasons I believe Jesus really is who he says he is. Um, the historical evidence, the archaeological evidence, the, uh, they call it the, what I would say, the internal attestation of the, of the Bible where it attests to the fact of who Jesus is throughout the Bible. You see how it all ties together. The external uh, sources that confirm that Jesus actually lived and died. You could look at the logical reasons how the disciples completely changed their life after the resurrection because they saw the risen Lord. But one of the biggest reasons I think that we see that Jesus is who he says he is, is fulfilled prophecy. This is before the internet. This is before uh, the printing press. And you see that these books and these letters were written in multiple places by multiple people over a thousand years. And, and you see how it all ties together from beginning to end. And Jesus fulfills each and every prophecy perfectly. It's amazing to me. I mean, I, I, and, I, and I say this seriously, we couldn't do this today with the tools we have. It's so supernatural to see how God wove the truth of Scripture throughout, from Genesis to Revelation. It's amazing. And um, the, the virgin birth just reminds us that God's Word is trustworthy. That He can orchestrate events according to His divine plan. He is working even when we don't realize it. But if I'm going to mention Isaiah 7.14, I've got to also tell you what you're going to hear about Isaiah 7.14 because I've heard it. And it's this, well, the Old Testament, it doesn't really, it's not really talking about a virgin. And, and you'll hear this, and even some translations even have taken, in Isaiah 7.14, have taken the word virgin out and replaced it with young woman. And what I think this is, it's kind of, kind of part of a broader movement to deny the miracles of the Bible. And you'll see this and you'll experience this and depending on who you listen to from time to time this will come out and they'll say, well that's not, that word in Hebrew could mean young woman. It, it can mean young woman but it can also mean virgin. And here's how we can know that it was really supposed to be virgin. Um, 200 years before the birth of Christ, the Hebrew Bible, and I'm getting into some teaching this morning, I hope you don't mind. I think this helps us understand, I think we, we need to know we can trust what we read, Right? And this is this important stuff. About 200 years before the birth of Christ, the Hebrew Scripture was translated into the Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And so when Jesus and the disciples would read the Old Testament Scripture, uh, we think they were most of the time reading from the Greek, and they were reading from the translated Septuagint. And when it was translated, Isaiah 7.14 was translated into the Greek 200 years before Jesus, mind you, before the virgin birth even happened. They had a choice to make. How would they translate this Hebrew word into Greek? The word they chose in Greek meant without a doubt 100% virgin. And so from that point forward, this was established before Jesus was even born. And so we can know that, right? That's just another fact that kind of we see, we understand, we read, and say, oh, that helps us understand this is what it means. And so um, I'm just telling you, in today's world, you have a lot of people that will tell you, well, you can't believe in the Bible because miracles didn't really happen. I took a religion class when I was at Virginia Tech years and years ago. And one of the first things the, 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 the professor did when we got in there, well, you've been taught all this stuff didn't happen. It couldn't really. Miracles didn't happen. This, there's no scientific explanation. I'm like, that's why it's a miracle, right? That's what a miracle is. And he's like, well, they couldn't happen. I'm like, it's because we've tried to explain everything and God is indescribable. 
And that's the problem in our world today. We think we can figure out God and we think we can fit him into our little box. And God's saying, wait a minute here. There are things that are happening that are supernatural because I am God and I can do whatever I please. And so um, that's one of the issues with Isaiah 714 that you'll hear about. Let me kind of tell you another issue. I'll kind of play devil's advocate here a minute that you'll hear. And, And this is this whole concept of Virgin Mary, who she is. And this is a major theological difference between Protestants and Catholics. And so if you have a Catholic background, I'm not trying to be offensive, but I want to tell you, let's, we go by what the Bible says. That's kind of the, the, the root of what we want to study. And in the Catholic Church, uh, they've got a few doctrines that are different that we disagree with. One of them is what's called uh, uh, the Immaculate Conception. Have you heard of that? The Immaculate Conception? They believe that since Jesus was born sinless, that Mary had to be sinless as well. And so they'll teach that. Um, another is the assumption of Mary that, uh, that when she died, she just ascended into, to, you know, just that she was assumed into heaven. Uh, just, to, just, you know, and so uh, in, in Jerusalem today, they have the, the Abbey of the Dormition, a big church there that celebrates where uh, Mary, like, ascended back up. You have... Um, uh, all these beliefs about Mary performing miracles. Right? You have the belief that um, Mary was a perpetual virgin, um, the Virgin Mary. She's venerated as a saint. We got ourselves in trouble in Jerusalem, or not, in Nazareth, um, with a Catholic nun last year. There's this little bitty, she's like four feet, four feet nothing, um, 90-some-year-old Catholic nun. Um, and she, we were there, and there's this, there's this, a Catholic uh, convent there in Nazareth, Sisters of Nazareth. You can look it up online. They found an old first century house underneath the church. And what was interesting about it, when they found this, like, you know, it's kind of, and everything's down layers, you know. You go down in this, you see this. There was a church built on top of it. And when they built churches on top of houses, it was to commemorate something. And so they don't know who lived in this house, but they're saying, wow, if a church was built here this early, this had to be an important house. So they'll, they'll tell you, this, is, this very well could have been the place where Jesus grew up in this home right here. And with his, with his family, I'm like, oh, that's so cool. You know, I'm like, that means, right, that James and Jude, his brothers, lived here too. And they don't believe that Jesus had brothers. Okay, they believe they were, they were cousins. And so she very quickly corrected us. No, the holy family is just Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. She was not happy with me, right? She had to, and I'm like, oh, but, and then I'm like, okay, there's no, I'm not going to argue with a 90-year-old Catholic nun, okay? Um, she, she, I think she could take me. Uh, they're a little strict over there. This, but it's, you know, there's all these beliefs, and I just say, you, you, you see all these beliefs about Mary, and, and even, you know, at times they're accused of worshiping Mary or praying through Mary. I would just say in the Bible, um, Mary knew that she was unworthy to, 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 to bear Jesus. She even said in Luke um, 1, 47, how my spirit rejoices in God my, what? Savior. She wouldn't say my Savior if she didn't re- acknowledge she knew she needed saving as well. Right? And, and so I, I would just challenge you when you're confronted with beliefs that are contrary to what we've grown up with and what, where do you go? You go to the Bible. What does the Bible say? And many of these beliefs about Mary, they're not in the Bible. 
And so what we do, who is Mary? She was, the, she was very blessed. <laughs> it was amazing that God chose her. Highly favored, highly blessed, yes. But sinless, no. Because she never claimed to be. The Bible doesn't claim. That's, and, and honestly, those teachings came much later. They were not early in the church. They came at 500 A.D., 1000 A.D. These, these beliefs about Mary started just, it all, it's just weird how it, it all developed. But anyway, off my soapbox for a minute. The truth is, we need to understand that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah uh, he was born of a virgin. That's important. So why is it important? It keeps going. It shows that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's the second point there. The virgin birth, what it did, it made possible the, the uniting of this idea of the full deity and the full humanity of God in one person. And so uh, God, in his wisdom, he came up with this. It's amazing, right? that he used the virgin birth to demonstrate the fact that Jesus would be different from every other person who ever lived before or after. Um, Wayne Grudem says this, he says, When we speak of the humanity of Christ, it is appropriate to begin with a consideration of the virgin birth of Christ. Scripture clearly asserts that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and without a human father. So why is that important? Why do, why do we even talk about that? It's because Joseph the carpenter did not pass on his sinful nature to Jesus for the simple reason that Joseph was not the father. Jesus had no sin nature. That, that, that separated Jesus from everybody that had ever lived before or after. He was, he, he was born without that sin nature. I, I said earlier, when Adam and Eve sinned, it broke everything. The world was broken. Uh, sin entered the world. And that, that, that sin was passed from generation to generation, just like a virus that was passed down. We've inherited it, it as well. And so we need to understand, right, that, that the problem, I think, in our world today, nobody thinks they need saving because everybody thinks they're good. And I hate to break it to you, but you're not good in and of yourself. When we, we are born with a sin nature. We need saving. It's the whole reason Jesus came. And so as we look, even in his genealogy, Matthew, he, he didn't call Joseph the father of Jesus. He speaks of Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And so they're careful to kind of avoid uh, you know, claiming that Jesus had an earthly father. Joseph was there and functioned in that role, but he was not the father. Hebrews 7 says this. It says about Jesus, He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy. He is blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. He was different. Uh, and this, this is why the virgin birth is so foundational to our Christian belief of the divinity of Jesus Christ. By being conceived by the Holy Spirit, by being born of a virgin, he is, that's what made him fully God and fully man. Uh, let's read the account of his birth from Matthew. Um, it says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man 
He did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break off the engagement quietly. As he considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Back to Isaiah 7.14. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. And so I would say this concept is a huge stumbling block to people who are not Christians. This idea that Jesus is fully God. He was born of a virgin. I think for most non-Christians, they would say, I can believe that there was a guy named Jesus. I can believe that he was a good teacher. I can believe that he lived over in Israel. Um, I can believe that, that you can kind of piece together and say, I believe this, but when it gets to saying he was God in the flesh, he was born of a virgin, I think that's where non-Christians, they just say, wait a minute, that's too far-fetched. I, I can't really buy that. So this is the stumbling block. That's, again, why it's important. And so for centuries after Jesus, the church struggled to define this relationship between his divine nature and his human nature. And so this is why, as you study the early church, there's all these heretical ideas popped up. And they tried to explain, explain the ways they tried to explain it, it either compromised the divinity of Jesus or it reduced the significance of his humanity. And so to understand he is fully God and, and fully man, that's, again, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. These creeds helped the church explain it in a way that people could understand. I read it this, this week. It said if you put an apple and an orange in a blender and mix them together, you can't say that either result, the end result that you get is still fully apple and fully orange. It's, it's something new, right? It's been mixed together. Um, but Jesus' defined and human natures exist together in such a way that even though they're united in one person, they're still unblended. They each retain all of their qualities without interfering with each other. We see this about Jesus throughout his life. We see that he got tired. See that he needed uh, to rest. He needed to sit down. He got thirsty. We see that he needed sleep. But we also see that he could heal people. He could, he could forgive their sins. He could cast out demons. He could, he could calm the storm. He could command nature with just a word. Again, you see this combination. He was fully man, but also fully God. And so, by being sinless, he was uniquely qualified to act as this sacrifice for our sin, bridging the gap between humanity and God, because he was God. He was God dwelling among us. Philippians 2 says it this way. I I love, this whole passage in Philippians is so rich. It says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, but instead he gave up his divine privileges. He emptied himself. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. We see again this whole idea here 
that he was God, but yet he became human. Fully God, fully human. Uh, the, the hypostatic union in his theology, if you ever search that word, you'll see all so much stuff about this whole idea. So uh, the virgin birth is this miraculous event. It's a miracle that, that, that shows that Jesus is not like any other human being. He is not the son of a human father, but he is the son of God. And so when you read that, this is the son of God, this is the son of man. He's fully God, he's fully man, all right? This is important because it means he can understand our struggles. He knows what it's like to be one of us. He, he faced the same temptations we did, and yet he did not sin. Right? In Hebrews 4, that's what it tells us. We have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours, he understands our weaknesses. For he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. And again, I think this is understanding that he is fully God and fully man. It just means he understands us. He cares about us. He knows us because he's been right where we are. And so that's the second. Here's the third thing it shows. And finally, the third, third thing that the virgin birth shows us is that it shows us that he's our savior. Jesus is our savior. It shows us that Jesus was born without sin. Uh, this is so important because it means that he was able to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. Let, let's talk about this for a minute. In the Old Testament, what we see because of the brokenness, because of the sin that entered the world in Genesis 3, um, now we have a problem. God is holy. He is just. He, de he demands payment for sin that occurs. And so for a time after creation, let, let's look at this. The world was perfect. The first humans, Adam and Eve, they lived in this place called the Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect, but for a while. In Genesis 3, though, Satan tricks Adam and Eve into doing the one thing that God told them not to do, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In that moment, sin entered the world and everything changed. Sin is the wickedness in each of us that causes us to act selfishly. It causes us to rebel against God. It causes us to hurt each other. It causes all the brokenness around us. Sin forced Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, and everyone after Adam and Eve was born into sin, separated from God. The Bible tells us that there's payment for sin. It's Romans 6, 23. Uh, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. There, there's, there's a penalty for sin that must be paid. In the Old Testament, it tells how on the Day of Atonement, once each year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer that sacrifice to atone, to cover, to pay for the sins of the people. And that one day a year, the sins would be paid for. He would pray for the people. They would cast the, the sin on a scapegoat and run the scapegoat out of town to, to symbolize the sin being carried out of the camp. All right. And so this happened year after year after year. But it also showed that it was an imperfect system. That no matter how many uh, sheep were sacrificed, it would never truly remove the sin forever. And so when Jesus came, so I, when John the Baptist saw him, he said, he, here's the perfect, he, he's the perfect Lamb of God that has come to take away the sin of the world. John the Baptist realized this was the once for all final sacrifice that mankind needed. And it all could happen because he was born of a virgin. He was born 
sinless. He is not like us. He is perfect. He is holy. He is completely loving. He is completely just. We deserve separation from God because of our sin. But yet, when Jesus came, He came because of God's great love for us. He came because God wanted to make a way that we wouldn't have to go through this sacrifice year after year after year. Jesus was our once for all final sacrifice. I read this week, it said, By being born of a virgin without a human father, Jesus is believed to have entered the world without sin and free from the inherent sin that is passed down through human generations. This sinless nature was crucial for Jesus to serve as the perfect sacrifice for humanity's sins, offering redemption and reconciliation between God and humanity. The virgin birth underscores the significance of Jesus' role as Savior and emphasizes the divine plan for salvation of mankind. Let's read the, 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 the birth account one more time from the book of Luke. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her. For you have found favor with God. You will conceive, you will give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus. He will be very great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. The kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm, I'm a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy. He'll be holy, set apart. He'll be different. He'll be called the Son of God. And so this virgin birth, it's just a powerful reminder of who Jesus is, that He has come to be our Savior, our Messiah, our Lord. It just shows that the salvation comes from God. It's not something we earn. It's not something we can do. It all happens because of who Jesus is and was. I love this, that part of the story. So... In closing, I would say, what does this mean then? You, you might go, okay, okay, we, we've talked about the virgin birth. What is, here's why it matters. If Jesus was truly born of a virgin, if this was a miraculous event in the history of mankind, not happened before, not happened since, he was born of a virgin, right? He is God in the flesh. Then it demands we live our life differently as a result. As you look through history again, I don't think we, we can't just say, well, okay, he, maybe this did happen. Or maybe, no, if, he, if this happened, it changes everything. It, I mean, look at the disciples. Just think about the disciples for a minute. After the resurrection, they went from being scared to being bold preachers. They went to losing their life because they wouldn't deny who Jesus was. It changed everything about them. And so why for us today can we say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but then we can go on and live our life like nothing is different. If you believe this, it changes how you live. If you believe this, it means you can't just sit on the sidelines anymore and say, oh yeah, and not tell anybody. It means this is the most important thing that has ever happened in human history. Uh, C.S. Lewis, and this is a famous quote from Mere Christianity. That was one of the books that I read in college. It really changed my life. Um, but you've probably heard this quote before, but I want to read it to you because it's good. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about God. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said 
he would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall on your feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Maybe you've heard it. It, C.S. Lewis kind of paraphrased this. He's either a lord, a liar, or a lunatic. It's only three choices. He's either the Lord, the God of creation, who's born of a virgin, who has come to save mankind, or he is a liar because he claimed to be, or he's a lunatic and he didn't even know. And I'm sorry, but those last two options are not an option. Right? It, It just shows that when we look and we understand who he is, then our only response is obedience. John 3, I love it, for this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son, that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. There's no judgment against anyone who believes in Him, but anyone who does not believe in Him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light. They refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. I'm just, uh, you know, I, I read this and I'm like, that's a picture of our world today. People don't want to believe in Jesus because it means they're going to have to turn from their sins. It means they're going to have to bring those things, that, those evil things in their life to light. And they're going to have to change. But if we believe that Jesus is who He says He is, then our only response is repentance. It's to turn from our sins. It's to turn to God. It's to say, I'm going to live differently as a result of what I've learned, of what I've experienced, of who Jesus is. It's not about our, us trying to earn our way into heaven. It's not about trying to, to get God to like us. It's all about understanding this is how much God loved me. He sent His one and only Son to die for me. And so this morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to that. Would you guys bow your heads? Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word that each and every week when we come, we, we, we open up Scripture And we stand in awe of your word. We stand in awe this morning of the miracle of the virgin birth. So we thank you for fulfilling prophecy. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to be our savior. Would you help us to understand the significance of of Jesus being fully God and fully man. Of him being born sinless so he could be the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so I pray for each and every person here, those here in person, those listening online. Would you help us, Lord, just to understand who Jesus is? Lord, um, would you help us to be able to say, Jesus is going to be my Lord. He's going to be my master. I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that I've rebelled against God. I've confessed that I've tried to do life my own way. But now I want to trust Jesus. I want to get, I want to get in the car and let him drive. I'm going to let him direct my life, direct my path. So this morning, Lord, would you just do that for each and every person that 
that is hearing. If they're here, they're unsure. They don't know whether or not they're saved. Would today be that day they say, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is the Lord of my life. I believe. I believe. I confess that I'm a sinner. That I need to be cleansed. I need uh, my sin to be forgiven. And I know that Jesus can do it because he died on the cross for me. He lived the perfect life that I couldn't live. He died the death that I deserved to die. And yet, because of that, it just shows how much, God, you love me and how much you care for me. And so this morning, I just surrender. I'm just tired of doing life my own way. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to walk with you. If that's your prayer this morning, God heard it. God answered it. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this church this morning. Would you help us to be bold in what we believe? Not to be shy, not to be cautious even, but to be bold in telling others about who you are and what you've done in our life. We just want to thank you and praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this morning. Amen.